Hey, listeners of the Bio Report. Before we get started this week, I wanted to tell you about the digital library from Deep Dive. How much time does your team spend looking for research papers? Google, PubMed, social media. There's got to be a better way. You can now search a reference database of 100 million scientific papers and read the full text of 20 million articles, annotate them, and share with colleagues. It's the smarter way to do research. Here's the best part. If you're like me and been frustrated by not being able to access articles you find because they're behind a paywall, I've got good news. With Deep Dive, you get one-stop affordable research. If you're a listener of the BioReport, you can try the enterprise version of the service for free for one month. Go to deepdive.com forward slash podcast and enter the code BIOREPORT. That's deepdive, D-E-E-P-D-Y-V-E dot com forward slash podcast. And the code is BIOREPORT, one word, all caps. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. will not live forever. Whether its destruction comes as the result of cosmic inevitability or human-caused cataclysm, the planet will eventually meet its demise. Though that may be billions of years from now, Chris Mason, in his book, The Next 500 Years, argues humans have a moral obligation to do what they can to ensure life from Earth can extend beyond the planet. Mason, principal investigator on NASA's twin study and a professor at Weill Cornell Medicine discussed the effects of space on the human body, how it may be possible to genetically engineer human and other life forms to thrive in environments less hospitable than Earth's through the use of new genetic tools, and the ethical consideration around these issues. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. A pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about your book, The Next 500 Years, and what it will take to engineer life to reach beyond Earth and allow man to outlive the planet. Mm -hmm. There's a lot in this book that I think readers might find ethically challenging, but the whole framework for it and the, the work it discusses begins with an ethical imperative. This has to do with the unavoidable fate of the Earth and the responsibility that comes with the awareness of the extinction of life that will go with that. Can, mm. can you explain? Happy to. So yes, it is, you know, it starts with a very, a simple premise that has, I think, a clear ethical need and then gets into, well, if that's true, what does that lead to? And that's, I think, where a lot of the interesting questions are. But in a, in a nutshell, we are the only species with an awareness of extinction, as you just said. And, you know, we are the only ones that can actually prevent extinction for other species. Obviously, sometimes we've caused it, which is not great. We don't have a perfect track record on this, but 
we're the only ones that can serve as, as really, you know, stewards and, and, you know, basically shepherds of life, not just our own life, because at some point the sun will boil the oceans. And if we want to survive, we'd have to go elsewhere. So Mars and elsewhere is not plan B, it's just plan A in the long run. And like all questions are very clear in the lens of a billion years. And then if that's true, that means that we, if we want to survive ourselves or other creatures, as far as we know, we're the only ones that know this. So it's incumbent upon us to serve as the protectors and actually, you know, uh, you know, protect current species or even to revive extinct species, as I talk about in the book, uh, because we are the only ones that have this capacity. So I think it gives a unique role in the universe and a unique responsibility, quite literally a duty for our species to all other species. One of the biggest surprises for me in reading the book is that it's not an abstract thought exercise, but that as we're developing the ability to alter human and other life forms, we've become skilled in genomics and synthetic biology. Mm -hmm. There are actually efforts underway to figure out how to apply this to moving life beyond Earth. But before mm -hmm. we get into some of the issues of what's happening to the human body in space and how we might be able to address that at a biological level. Can you give us some sense of the work NASA and other researchers like yourself are doing to prepare human life and other life forms for life beyond Earth? Absolutely. So what we've been doing, uh, and some people might have heard on, on your show, is the twin study, for example. We looked at identical twins, Mark and Scott Kelly, and I served as the lead geneticist for the study. We uh, were one of 10 teams that was a large effort to look at every facet of biology and what happens to the body in space for a year. And we could see that, you know, we, well, that was the kind of a first pioneering mission, but now we're replicating a lot of those same measurements, looking at DNA, RNA, proteins, what happens in the muscles, the veins and arteries and the cognitive state behavior, all of it's being tracked to see what are the risks when we look at long-term space, like going to Mars or going uh, beyond that. And so we found that a lot of the changes I talk about in the book, you know, a, a great detail actually in the first few chapters, especially a lot of them change when you get up to space, almost everything in your body changes when you get to space. It's a weird place to be for the human body, but it does mostly come back, but we can see things that didn't go back. Like the DNA repair process continues even after you get back from space because of the radiation or the muscles recalibrating to gravity. You can see how that process literally reforms the body when you get back to earth. Uh, but that it, it, it's mostly good news from what we've seen. And now we want to think, can we have countermeasures or therapeutics or probiotics or other ways just to make it a little bit easier on the human body when we look at Mars and beyond? What's happened to change this discussion from a fertile ground for the imagination of science fiction <laughs> writers to serious academic and government area of research? Yeah, it, it's really been, you know, 25 years ago, everything I talk about in the book would have been pure science fiction because we just didn't know. But what I was able to do is I was able to write this book last year because, you know, we've reached a space where there's these two twin engines of discovery you know, that I call them is have really catapulted us forward into a science reality. That's it's not all fiction. So the first engine is genetics and genomics and the ability to sequence DNA and understand the facets of biology down to the molecular level. So we can actually see what happens to every, every gene in the body and every cell type and how the body responds. And even just to have a human genome, which we didn't have until 2001 as a draft, to anchor medicine onto it and then think about space medicine as well in a genomic perspective. We, we do that for cancer at my hospital, as you can probably hear, there's a siren in the background. There, every cancer patient gets their genome sequence for each tumor and they're in like, essentially it's genome guided medicine for most of infectious disease and cancer. And now we're bringing that, the tool set to space medicine and aerospace medicine as well. 
And then the second engine of discovery, you know, so the first engine is just genomics, uh, molecular level understanding of disease and health. The second engine is uh, on top of genomics, we have just the ability to discover exoplanets or a lot of the transiting methods where we can see, you know, you know basically we did, 25 years ago, we had only a handful of exoplanets, planets outside of our solar system that we'd ever found. Now we have thousands of them and several hundred are probably habitable planets uh, for humans. They have liquid water, probably at the right temperature. Uh, and so it's really, you know, now with those two together, we have a molecular understanding of health and disease. And we can think about even ways to protect the genome or even modify the genome so it could make the trip. And we also have places that we know we can go to. And we had neither one of those a couple of decades ago. A moment ago, you alluded to the twin study. I, I'm wondering if we can take a deeper dive there. Can you explain for listeners what exactly this was, what it involved? Yeah, so this was a, a unique opportunity because uh, Scott Kelly, who'd been up to space before, had announced a year-long mission, also with a cosmonaut to be to try and get up there for a full year. And we had a unique opportunity because his, he's a twin brother, an identical twin, who it was going to stay on Earth. And we thought, well, let's see if we could. Uh, it's a very small powered study, but we collected 280 samples over the course of almost three years before, during, and after the mission and got blood from space. We really wanted to look at every uh, immune cell, every, every you know, tissues from his microbes from his gut, tissues from anywhere in his body. How is his cognitive speed changing? So we did a, a full molecular and behavioral and physiological workup of what happens to the body for the, the, the longest ever NASA mission actually with the, and still is. So the, you know, this, this was a deep dive at the highest possible resolution and the first you know, genome of an astronaut that had been sequenced. So I called it in the book, it's the first genetic astronauts because we brought genetic tools and technologies for the first time to bear for astronauts. And, and was this an opportunistic study or did Kelly go to space for that purpose? We went there, they, they knew they wanted to begin to do longer missions. So NASA now has, you know, working with NASA on some future missions where it's not just doing this uh, one-off. We're now doing additional year-long missions or comparing it to six-month missions. The plan eventually is even to get to one and a half or two-year-long missions to start to get close to what happened if you went to Mars and back, basically. So we, uh, it, it, it was the first step into this, you know, stairwell of, of long missions and you know, Martian missions, basically. So we wanted to build a really good bedrock of molecular data before we do other astronauts. And is there any way to quantify the amount of data that was gathered and the range of it? Yeah, it covered. Uh, so we, I can tell you this actually, because we just were emailing with NASA about this last week because we want to get it into a repository so that other people can use it. But basically it is about, if you include all the raw data, it, it's getting close to a petabyte of data, the raw and processed data. Uh, from every sequence of every time point, from every assay. Uh, so it's getting big. And in the data is, again, at every layer of biology and physiology. So this means DNA, RNA, the proteins, metabolites are these small molecules in your blood that move around, the microbes, what happens to the, the vasculature, the, you know, essentially what's happening in, in the brain, the behavior, the cognitive speed. All these data and metrics are all in, in it's sort of the first step of what we want to do for future astronauts. So it's a lot of data and over 280 samples collected over three years. And, and how much of the, the samples or actual data were collected in space versus when he returned? Uh, actually we had uh, from Scott, you'd think the person on earth we'd have the most samples from, but it's actually not true. We have more samples from Scott than we do from Mark. 
some of it's just because when you're stuck in a space station, you know, we know where you are and we can uh, get samples. from. <laughs> Whereas if you're on Earth, you can be having some margaritas. Maybe you're you know, going to walk around and get some pizza and, you know, you might. So sometimes we send phlebotomists to meet Mark at a hotel or wherever he was to draw blood and get other collections. Uh, for Scott, it was easier when he was. So basically about 60 percent of them were more from Scott and 40 percent from Mark. You found changes to not only the genetics, but the epigenetics, the immune system. Walk us through some of the, the most significant changes that you saw from being in space. Yeah, it was really extraordinary because not surprisingly, you're suddenly in a space where the human body has evolved to get used to gravity. And suddenly when it's not there, we see spikes in cortisol, which indicates stress. We saw stress in the, uh, the immune system markers at the, at the epigenetic level, which is sort of on top of DNA or how DNA is regulated and controlled. We could see changes in how T cells were activating. So his immune system got up to space and suddenly said, aha, I'm in a new environment. I'm going to begin to you know, basically proliferate T cells and activate them to get used to the environment. We saw the microbes change in his gut and in his skin and in his mouth. We actually could see that some of the microbes that he, he didn't have any evidence of them on him, but, but we could see because we were also sequencing the walls of the space station inside. We could see that some of them transferred into astronaut Kelly when he was up there for a year. So we could actually see he became more chemically and biologically like the space station the longer he was up there. So all these changes were occurring. Uh, his cognitive speed actually got a little bit better in the middle of the mission. So he's actually still performing tasks at a really high level. And we saw thousands of genes get turned on and turned off in response to spaceflight. Again, a lot of them were DNA damage and DNA response genes. So repairing any of the damage from radiation or just you know responding to flight. And most of them came back to normal. So we found about 93% of all these things that changed generally got back to normal with, within a few months of being back on earth. But of those few that didn't change back right away, they were still evidence that the body was repairing the DNA damage, repairing its cells, getting back to normal. It took a little bit longer still. So we could see that still uh, in, in his body when he got back. One of the surprising findings was it actually caused the lengthening of the yes. telomeres, the, the ends of the chromosomes and the lengths of which have been associated with longevity. Is it understood why this occurred? Yes. We've seen, well, we have uh, some interesting theories and we've replicated this data again on other astronauts. So we, at the time when we just had Scott, we could see his telomeres, which are the caps at the end of your chromosomes and kind of maintain integrity of your, of your DNA and your genome. They got longer. Now, normally as you age, they get shorter. So we actually thought the hypothesis was between uh, our lab and Susan, Dr. Susan Bailey's lab at uh, Colorado was, you know, the telomeres would probably get shorter in space because you, uh, it's a stressful environment. It's harder on the body. And so as we saw the telomeres get long. The first things we did is we, you know, everyone was like, well, is that, how's that going to be possible? It's, it's very uncommon for telomeres to get longer uh, as a consequence of time or stress. So we looked at different cell types. I sent samples to the Bailey lab and they sent samples back to us. So we confirmed it with multiple sets of samples, double checked it, did it, checked it multiple, uh, multiple assays and it was real. And then when we realized, when we looked at the other molecular data, we could see his folate levels were positive. He actually was working out every day, almost every day. And he had a really good diet that was very nutritious. So we actually, upon looking at some of the molecular data, he actually had a relatively healthy lifestyle, even though he was in space getting low level radiation and in zero gravity. Uh, but otherwise it's a pretty healthy environment. Whereas on earth, it's a bit more, uh, it's less healthy in general. You can sleep, you know, maybe you have a long night, maybe you go out with friends, uh, maybe you don't go to the gym as much as you should. So we, we could see some of it was his lifestyle was ironically a little bit healthier in space on most metrics. 
And the other thing that's interesting though is we've now looked at people who climb Mount Everest and people other, we looked at 11 other astronauts in the past year and they also get longer telomeres when they go to space or when you climb Mount Everest. So we think it's a combination of very, very healthy people who are, and then in generally healthy environments where they're working out a lot, generally good things to your body. And a little bit maybe of hypoxia because we see some of that on Mount Everest and uh, on the space station occasionally. And, uh, but that does go back to normal. So when you get back, it, you know, you don't, the fountain of youth might be in space, but it goes away when you come back. So uh, that's what we've seen so far. In space, there's greater exposure to radiation of all kinds, cosmic galactic rays, solar energetic particles, as well as the loss of gravity. Is yeah. there any sense of what agents account for which changes? Yes, this is a, an active area of debate. We think, you know, based on the ground studies we've done and what we saw on Mount Everest, we think, because you, you do get a lot more radiation when you get to the top of Mount Everest because you have less atmosphere. So we think the low level radiation and in general, the, the otherwise healthier lifestyle does seem to be a factor because we know if you look in lab models, if you give them low level radiation, they can also get telomere lengthening, even Plasmodium falciparum, which causes malaria. It's a parasite. It also has telomeres. And we've shown that even if you irradiate them, they also get longer telomeres as a, as a brief response. So we think the radiation is driving it for the most part, but, um, but uh, you know, realistically, they're all combined, of course. We're still learning a lot about the microbiome and the critical role it plays. What did you find about the effects of space on Kelly's microbiome? We saw some interesting changes. So in the gut, of course, there's thousands of species. And we looked at his, his skin microbiome and, his, and also his saliva and, and, and his mouth. You know, we saw a lot of species uh, change, but overall, the number was relatively stable. So he didn't suddenly lose a lot of species or gain too many. But he did gain, in some cases, very specific species. Like I mentioned, uh, one of the species of Staph epidermis, which is normally on skin, that he didn't have when he left Earth. He picked it up on the space station, and he still kept it on his skin and also some in his mouth when he got back from space. So that was interesting to see. We could also see that his what's called firmicutes to bacteriorities. There are two different kinds of bacteria in his gut that the, their ratio uh, got a little bit worse in space insofar as they, the ratio got higher, which is sometimes an indicator of poor uh, GI health. So that was one thing we saw, but that also got back to normal when he went, got back to earth. And then the last thing I alluded to is we saw he became more like the space station and that his T cells we could say they changed to start looking more for the microbes that were in the walls of the space station. So we could see genetic and immunological changes uh, of how the microbiome was impacting him during space flight. Among the, the many things you discuss is the potential to not only alter our genes to make us better suited for life off of Earth, but to take genes from other organisms to give humans new abilities that might make them better suited to be able to thrive and survive in space and on different planets. This can be anywhere from altering the spectrum of light humans can see to our mm -hmm. ability to withstand radiation. Are, are there some examples of where these genes exist today and how they might be made use of in the future? Uh, absolutely. So what's really exciting is, you know, is what we've found in the past couple decades, you know, as I mentioned, that engine of discovery of just sequencing genomes, finding other adaptations of other creatures and then understanding the genetic substrate of these extraordinary abilities, almost like X-Men, uh, you know, in the universe around us of, of biology. So what we've seen is, you know, one example I talk about uh, that we have working in lab and I discuss in the book is an organism called a tardigrade, which is often called a water bear. It's actually in almost every environment on Earth. And it's this little, it looks like a tiny microscopic bear, hence the name, but it actually can survive 
extreme amounts of radiation, actually, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of times more, uh, hundreds or thousands of times more than what a human can survive. And it can even be dried out and put into space and come back and thawed and survive. So it's a really extraordinary creature. And it has a gene called DSUP, which is a DNA damage suppressor, which we've now put into human cells and gotten it so we can reduce the DNA damage by more than 80%. So we can actually take basically a protein from a different creature, put it in human cells and show that it's functionally able to reduce the damage. Basically, we're taking the evolutionary lessons from another creature and helping human cells with it. So I think that's one example I also discussed in the book uh, where we can have extra copies of genes. So you know, if you wanna modify your genome, you either get a different gene from somebody else or a different creature, or you can also make extra copies of your own gene. Like P53 is a gene where elephants have 20 copies of it. And so they regulate it in a way and have less cancer. So you add more copies, or I talk about a lot of clinical trials, some being done at our hospital right here or elsewhere around the world where you modify cells or you modify the genome to, to get rid of a disease. One example is where you, you take away uh, something that's, that's suppressing a fetal hemoglobin. So for, for the therapies where you have a, a blood problem or a blood disorder, you can actually take what's the hemoglobin, which carries oxygen in your blood. When you're a baby, it's called fetal hemoglobin or when you're a fetus. And it gets turned off when you get born or right before. Uh, but you can turn it back on. If you have a problem with your adult version of the gene that helps your blood carry oxygen, what if we just turn back on the fetal version? That's exactly what's being done in clinical trials. So I just described basically what is the current literature, the state of the art where we can add, subtract, or modify genes from within our genome or elsewhere and cure diseases, add new functions. Again, take the evolutionary lessons from all creatures to help humans survive on earth or elsewhere. And how important would the reversibility of genetic alterations be as you think about this future? Yeah, it, it's key. So I, I discuss other uh, tools in there called epigenetic CRISPR methods. A lot of people have heard of CRISPR, uh, but this is the gene editing tool that lets you modify specific spots, or you can also do epigenetic CRISPR where you just turn a gene on for a little while and then you can turn it back off later. So you can you know, basically tweak the epigenome to respond to say radiation. And we have that working in lab as well, but you can also add a gene in and then take a genome back out later. And so you know, a lot of the tools I describe are in the early days. So I don't think we would actually do this to astronauts, for example, for probably 10 or 20 years it would have to be very clear that the you know risk is low, that the uh, you know any risk is is worth it, frankly, that the benefits outweigh the risks, uh, and that there's no other options for protection. So it's very early days. But what was exciting about to write in the book is that these are all happening today. These are not science fiction. These are tools in my lab, in other people's labs, in clinical trials, in patients as we speak. So it's a really extraordinary time. As the title implies, this is envisioning a, a future 500 years out, where we're not just talking about spending a year up in a space station, but actually extending human life to planets beyond our own solar system. Do you envision these genetic alterations being limited to somatic cells or would they need to be germline alterations that would be passed down through generations? Great question. So this is often a dividing line for any genome editing discussion is, is this just for one person, for one patient in one generation, or is the germline changes, as you just said, is this inheritable? Does this go on and on? Have we, are we gonna fundamentally alter the fabric of genetics for our species and everything that comes after? And normally, and, and still today, almost everything is somatic. There's actually no germline editing trial, at least that I know of. And that's because we don't know enough yet to be sure that we know everything that we're doing, right? If, if you have a clinical trial and something goes wrong in, in one person out of a thousand or a million, uh, that's not so bad. That person has a bad response or an adverse reaction 
and that's just that person. But if it suddenly is her heritable and you don't realize it till, till after thousands of babies have been born, that's a big problem, right? So I think we, I don't, I discussed germline editing, but it probably wouldn't occur until I think even maybe a hundred years out from now where we have, we have so much certainty that the only way, for example, that we could protect someone living on Mars permanently and their families is if we had to modify the genome. If we realize it's either that or they all die, then if we have the technology to keep someone alive and we don't deploy it, then it's actually unethical to, to do that, right? You, you, if you have a way to keep someone alive safely and efficaciously, you do need to do that if the alternative is, is actual, it's just near a certain death. So I describe that as, as a possibility for future missions. Not guaranteed, but that is one instance where you would be ethically obligated to perform the genome editing. 500 years from now, you envision humans no longer being passive participants in evolution, but directing and mastering the ability to direct their own evolution. You say this will allow humans to achieve true cellular, molecular, and planetary liberty. What might that look like and what would be the consequences? Yeah, I think this is where it gets a bit you know, controversial for some because you think, okay, you're editing genomes. It could be heritable. What's the danger of that? There's a lot of obvious dangers where if you do it wrong, someone could get cancer or die or that the cure is worth, worse than the risk or the disease. But the, the upsides could actually become you know, the opposite of what happened with eugenics. Where with eugenics, the goal was to basically take away liberties, take away people's reproductive rights, basically led to forced labor camps, death camps. It was using genetics as a way to think that we could basically get rid of all the diversity and pick one species. But this is actually the opposite of it. Instead of being forced into essentially whatever embryonic state you are in your genome, if you truly have cellular liberty to engineer or modify the genome, then you're not beholden to the disease genes you got from that very first cell, you could fix them. And you're then not beholden to only one planet on which you're born, you could modify the cells so that you have the ability to survive on not just on one planet, but multiple. That's what I'm just calling planetary liberty. The ability to say, my cells are, are optimized to let me go to multiple places, which is really the definition of liberty, is the ability to go places, to have the choice to do things. Because I think we would do a disservice to future astronauts if we said, hey, we can heavily monitor your genome, but you're only gonna be able to live on Mars and that's it. So you kind of got to pick, you live on Earth or Mars and we can't let you go back and forth. Through the technology I describe in the book, there are ways we can make it so you have you know, epigenetic and genetic therapies that make it so you could go on either planet. And so this is, that's the aspiration is that by the end of the next three, four, 500 years, we've mastered these technologies to uh, really give full plasticity and cellular liberty for people in the future. Well, we started this conversation with an ethical framing you used for the book. I, I wanted to end on a question on a related ethical issue. One, I think that's implicit in aspects of the book, and that's we're going to be able to master alteration of our genetics and eventually do this with ease and little expense. Yeah. There's little debate that we should harness this technology for curing disease, but to what extent should we use it for enhancements on earth, expanding our intelligence, strengths, or even use genes from other organisms to give us superhuman abilities? Does that possibility raise issues for you? It raises lots of issues. The most notable one is the you know, structural inequities and disparities in healthcare and access to medicine, access to resources, these are inextricably linked to the deployments of the technology. And historically, humans have never really deployed a technology equitably. You know, so it always started with someone who's wealthy, someone who can afford it. Uh, I think you know, there's been occasionally been vaccination drives that have been 
at least on a national level, sometimes been somewhat equitable, but certainly not internationally. So I think th that is an unsolved challenge of just the sociological the in, in, rampant inequity in healthcare and access to care and resources, uh, structural racism that exists that has persisted through generations that still affects some of the same healthcare inequity. So there, there's a large wealth of problems in society that are still there that even if you had a perfect genome editing toolkit, would probably, unfortunately, if it was deployed today, would still fall under some of those same challenges sociologically. But it has gotten better than it was before. We, we you know, at this point, I think on sort of racial justice, things have improved on, on access to medicine, access to care, literacy rates, infant mortality. But almost, but every, actually every single metric for human, you know, progress, things are getting better and continue to get better. So I think it will, it will require work, but it is possible to deploy the tech to make the technologies and eventually deploy them in an in a equitable and, and unified fashion. But we are definitely not there yet. And I, I would hope that things get better as the technology gets better, our ability as a society and as a species to, to deploy them becomes uh, more fair and more just. The book is The Next 500 Years, Engineering Life to Reach New Worlds. Chris Mason, author and principal investigator and co-investigator of seven NASA mission projects and a professor of genomics, physiology, and biophysics at Weill Cornell Medicine. Chris, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.